Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Hello and welcome. Uh, uh, these are interesting times uh, for all that that does to our central nervous system and our digestion. These are interesting times. Uh, and we've got uh, a big mission ahead of us on, on this week. I should just tell you right now, we are reviving for season two. <laughs> I don't think we ever thought we'd have a season two. Pardon me, another damn impeachment podcast or whatever it's called. The show that we did in 2019 and the beginning of 2020, uh, obviously, we're not all done impeaching Donald Trump. Uh, so that will still come today. I'm also going to put the second half of the uh, show into your hands and your dialing finger fingers, and we will uh, take your calls. But don't call yet, because we have a conversation we need to have first with Yasha Munk, uh, contributing editor at The Atlantic and associate professor at Johns Hopkins University, a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund and a senior advisor at Protect Democracy. His most recent book is The People vs. Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. He, usually, he recently also founded not all that recently at this point, the uh, newsletter slash platform Persuasion. Yasha, welcome back to our show. Thank you so much, Colin. Good to talk to you. So let's begin with, uh, you know, we're going to veer off into a slightly more philosophical territory in, in a while, but we should probably begin with the matter ahead of us. Uh, there is, there's going to be some kind of vote introduced by the House uh, on a resolution directing or asking Mike Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment. Uh, that will probably fail. It will be followed by uh, an article of impeachment that will probably be uh, introduced, brought to the floor on Wednesday. Um, Yasha, there's sort of two reasons to have this kind of conversation uh, about removing Donald Trump with such a short amount of time left. One of them is that he's dangerous. Uh, he's dangerous to have in office right now. And the other one is we have no way of holding people accountable, uh, people in high office like this, if in fact we can't do anything uh, when they are wrongdoers. So maybe you can address each of those. Because uh, mm -hmm. I know you have, you have some misgivings about uh, serious misgivings about the 25th Amendment uh, and mixed feelings about impeachment. But let's sort of go at it instead thematically. What about the argument that is just plain dangerous to, for him to be there until January 20th? Yeah. So first of all, I just want to distinguish between two different things. One of them is, do I think that Donald Trump deserves to be impeached? Do I think it would be good if he was removed from office or at least if he was censored after leaving office? Um, perhaps including a disability on his uh, freedom to run again in 2024. Um, and I think there's a very strong argument for that. Um, you know, you're supposed to become impeached for high crimes and misdemeanors. That's a slightly technical legal term, but it basically means uh, really uh, crimes uh, in office which go uh, against the United States form of government, which uh, violate your duty to uphold the Constitution, and mean you actually attack it. Um, you know, when you look at the deliberations of the founders, when you look at um, what people like uh, Hamilton wrote in the Federalist Papers, um, they were exactly worried about the kind of demagogue that Trump unsurprisingly has turned out to be. And so I think he does fulfill the substantive criteria 
um, of, of impeachment. And uh, if I was a, 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 a congressman or a senator forced to vote on articles of impeachment, I would have to vote in the affirmative for that reason. Now, that's different, I think, from the question of whether it is wise for those of us like me who oppose Donald Trump or for the Democratic Party um, to push for impeachment in a context where it's quite unclear whether or not uh, 67 senators will in fact uh, vote to convict him. And, and that's where I'm you know, a good bit more skeptical. So first of all, as you were saying, the argument until a couple of days ago was really, this guy is so dangerous, we got to get rid of him because you know, we just cannot live with him for another 12 days in office, 11 days in office, now it's nine days in office. And that argument has become moot because um, uh, the House has basically, the leadership in the House has basically acknowledged that we're not going to get him out of office before January 20th. So that argument has gone away. Um, so then the argument becomes, you know, is it worth impeaching him in order to censor him, in order to show that the House of Representatives once again uh, passed this resolution, and perhaps in order to stop him from being able to run again in 2024? Um, and to me, that question simply turns on whether it is likely to succeed. I don't think that um, we do very much to actually fortify the guardrails of democracy or to prove our point of principle if we impeach him and he can claim another great victory. He can say again that he was exonerated by the Senate um, because we can't get the 67 senators together. And that makes a, a certain amount of sense. Um, there's also a way in which I think to a larger degree than maybe we like to acknowledge, emotions play a tremendous role here. You know, I mean, really on Wednesday, January 6th, Donald Trump, Donald Trump didn't speak any differently or say things that he hadn't said before. The content of his speech, I don't think, was really, really particularly radically different from what we've become uncomfortably accustomed to over four years. The difference was a whole bunch of people then acted on his words in a way that they haven't before. And that, in terms, ratchets emotions up, not only in the public, but even more so, the people who were effectively attacked, the members of Congress. And so there's, it's kind of interesting, because the argument almost is, there's finally almost a, enough emotional fuel, maybe, to get this a little bit closer into the realm uh, of reality. Uh, Yasha, I would argue Trump really, you know, I don't think January 6th was a really radically different day for him than, you know, most of the other days while he's been in office. Uh, absolutely right. And I mean, this goes a little bit to a discussion about the 25th Amendment, which was passed after uh, John, F. Were, John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Um, and, and the purpose really was to deal with um, incapacitated presidents, if, if they die, of course, or if they're seriously disabled. Um, and so the premise of the 25th Amendment would have to be that there's some uh, physical, or in this case, mental deterioration in the president, which is, makes him incapable of exercising his office. Now, I've argued from the very beginning that Donald Trump is morally unfit to be president. Um, he is the sort of person that the American people, in their wisdom, should never elect president of the United States, precisely because um, I think everything he's done and said since entering politics indicated the extent to which he would be unwilling to accept the outcome of a free and fair election. We saw that in 2016 when he won, but fraudulently claimed to have won the popular vote as well. And we saw that again now when he lost and therefore has been undermining our democracy day in, day out. So 
I agree with you. There's nothing new about what Donald Trump did on January 6th. What is different is that we are seeing the predictable consequences of his irresponsible action, of his irresponsible words, in a new shocking light. Um, but here we see that, um, you know, the kinds of rhetoric that he's had all along, his unwillingness to accept the outcome of the election, his refusal to acknowledge Joe Biden as the legitimate 46th president of the United States, um, led to the sacking of the Capitol. And so you're right that, uh, you know, understandably, uh, that has changed the, the emotional landscape. It has changed uh, the desire to uh, somehow hold him accountable. And all of that I feel myself. Um, I, too, was incredibly angry on January 6th. I remain incredibly angry. I, too, want to hold him accountable. But I'm putting myself, I don't have children, but I'm putting myself in the position of a parent who needs to discipline a child. And I, I get that when the child does something very bad, you need to punish them. But I don't know that a world in which you don't punish them is any better or worse than a world in which you say, I will punish you so badly, and then you're incapable of actually carrying out that punishment. And the child learns that you're going to make big threats, but in the end, nothing happens. So absolutely, I hope that Republican senators would vote to convict him after January 20th. Um, I hope that impeachment would go through, and it now does look like we're going to have an impeachment trial in the Senate eventually, for probably not in the next nine days. Um, uh, I don't know if it's smart to initiate that impeachment trial if the likely outcome is that we like the parent who comes up with all kinds of threats, but uh, actually is never able to carry them out because we can't get the majority in the Senate for the second time. So there's another group of people that a lot of us think should be punished, and, and those are the people who uh, invaded and, and kind of sacked uh, the U.S. Capitol. Uh, so let's hear, before we discuss this, a Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and talking to Leslie Stahl on 60 Minutes uh, on Sunday. Is anybody running the executive branch of the government? Who is running the executive Well, sadly, the person who's running the executive branch is a deranged, unhinged, dangerous president of the United States. And only a number of days until uh, we can be protected from him. Uh, but he has done something so serious uh, that there should be prosecution against him. Well, uh, I gather that the 25th Amendment is off the table. That isn't. Nothing is off the table. All right. So that kind of speaks to the conversation we just had. But, you know, one of the things that you know, we saw with these these rioters who got into the Capitol, you know, it, it, it does seem as though maybe we kind of caught a break, not only just in terms of whether they were heavily armed. I mean, we now know that there were some pretty dangerous things uh, there on the premises or nearby. But it even appears reading some of the TikToks in The Washington Post and elsewhere, if they, they turn right and turn instead of turning left, running down a quarter or something. The whole thing could have been a lot worse. It did appear that some of them meant to harm uh, members of Congress or kidnap them or something. Uh, so this could have been a million times worse. And, and obviously, there's a lot of emotion, once again, Yasha, about doing something about this. But I do find, in a way that I, I think is somewhat influenced by your work, I, I want to check 
myself and people of my political leanings a little bit because there's a sense that no measure is too much at this point. And things that I would have obje objected to when directed at protesters of the Vietnam War when I was a teenager or Muslims after 2001, you know, just heavy surveillance and facial recognition stuff and, uh, you know, all data mining. There's a way in which we could be headed for another Patriot Act directed instead at right-wing extremists, which will be more palatable to people like me than the other countermeasures were, but that doesn't make it right. So how do we avoid it kind of tilting into that? Mm. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that um, uh, we need to prosecute everybody who uh, sacked the Capitol um, to the full extent of the law. Uh, and that means that we need to identify them um, and track them down. And, and have them arrested by the FBI. And of course, they have to get due process of the law. Of course, they have to have a freedom to have a jury uh, trial by their peers and, and all of the great protections that we have in our legal system. Um, uh, but it absolutely should be legitimate to use postings they themselves made on social media and other kinds of things as evidence in those court trials, as we do for smaller crimes as well. If I go and break into the next grocery store, and when I boast about it on Facebook, um, judges can use that as evidence against me. Um, and in the same way, we should be able to use their social media accounts as evidence uh, for the crimes they committed and make sure that um, uh, justice is duly served. Um, now, now I, I do think you're right, but there is a possibility of, um, you know, starting to uh, criminalize speech, um, starting to uh, perhaps... Um, uh, misunderstand the nature of a threat um, or misunderstand what the nature of a threat means for our country. Um, you know, there are seven or 8,000 people in Washington, D.C. on uh, last Wednesday from uh, what the best evidence seems to show us. Um, that's, a lot, that's a lot of people. And it, 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 is, it is saddening and sickening that so many of them were uh, willing to go and, um, you know, besiege uh, the parliament of our country. Um, but it is not tens of thousands of people, it's not hundreds of thousands of people, certainly not millions of people. Um, I mean, in a way, I'm struck by the fact that after Trump called all of his MAGA army to come out and to protest this um, certification on this supposedly incredibly important day, um, you know, what you got was 7,000 people, of which some were uh, there to um, uh, you know, really inflict violence and um, disrupt the democratic process, and others were there for protest and ended up uh, uh, getting swept along. They all need to be punished. Um, uh, we need to take that kind of threat seriously. We need to understand why it is that the capital was not properly guarded. Um, but, 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 but we shouldn't make the mistake of uh, uh, turning this into and 9-11 in which, uh, you know, this completely changes our politics for the next 15 or 20 years. Although there, well, I mean, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm essentially in agreement with you, but there are people who would say, who do say, I think John Harris has a piece in Politico today saying exactly that, that there should be a 9-11 type commission. There should be a fact-finding commission. Um, and I think the argument for that kind of thinking is that this is, so multi-level. I mean, you know, we've we acknowledge the president's role in this. Uh, there's clearly um, a, a continuum of roles occupied by members of Congress, ranging from the QAnon member from Georgia who was tweeting 
Nancy Pelosi's movements a little bit to, you know, just people who afterwards just went back down. 139 of them, I think, voted for at least one of the um, the House measures objecting to the certification of election results to the people who attacked the Capitol, to the people who in some ways subor- suborned or supported the people who attacked the Capitol. I mean, I think that's the argument anyway. Like, how big is it really? Who played what role? Uh, you know, there's always a push for truth and reconciliation. I guess the question is, is this a big enough event to warrant that? So I think it, I think we need to be precise in what we're talking about. If we're talking about a fact-finding uh, commission, um, that's something I'm in principle in favor of, whether it has to have the dimensions of a 9-11 Truth Commission or, uh, you know, exactly how you constitute it, exactly how you run it. Uh, those are questions that are sort of a little bit above my pay grade. Um, but absolutely, we need to have an objective investigation into what happened. Um, we're starting to have a little bit of a story emerging. There was a great story in the New York Times yesterday evening or this morning, um, uh, which seemed very complex. Um, the mayor of D.C. seems to have requested as low a presence as possible. Um, some of the people at the Pentagon, when uh, they got a request for assistance on the afternoon of uh, that Wednesday, um, seem to have overlearned the lessons from the summer and were very reluctant to f- send in federal troops because they'd been used in that terrible photo op stunt uh, by Donald Trump in June, and that seems to have delayed the, de- the, the deployment of National Guards, according to this New York Times article. We need to get to the bottom of all of those things. We need to make absolutely sure that if anybody wasn't competent, uh, that there's professional consequences for them, if anybody uh, uh, was actually sympathizing in any way over protesters and 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 their decisions were influenced by that, and they need to be really punished for that. Um, we need to get to the bottom of that. Um, whether that is, uh, uh, that's different from saying we need a whole raft of new legislation. Um, we need to accept the kinds of curtailments of civil liberties that we accepted after 9-11. Um, we need to put a lot more power into the hands of law enforcement as a result. Those uh, are points of which I would be much more skeptical. So absolutely get to the bottom of what happened. Make sure it doesn't happen again. Punish anybody uh, who acted unprofessionally or immorally. Um, uh, but, but don't change the nature of our public policy and don't inflict on our collective liberties as a result. Do we need a new raft of legislation that further sanctifies and protects election results. You know, Yasha, it's kind of funny in the way the goalposts uh, have been getting moved here uh, for decades, uh, certainly dating back at least to 2000. I've heard an awful lot about the problem of the Electoral College, you know, the way in which the Electoral College uh, disproportionately represents some people and, and less so for other people. Now, <laughs> some of the same people are, just because of what has happened, more concerned with protecting the Electoral College results from fraudulent uh, and specious attacks. Uh, it's like, you know, this thing that we never liked in the first place, we at least want it to work the way it's supposed to work. Uh, and I'm wondering what you think about that. I think there's there are calls mm-hmm. anyway that say, to say it should be harder to mount the kind of challenges that were mounted this time. Um, yeah, I don't think I don't, it's it's a funny element of what's going on right now. Uh, the sort of shift in our feelings about the electoral college you pointed to. I actually don't think that that's necessarily inconsistent. Um, it's perfectly fair to say, look, we don't love this system. Uh, perhaps we would have rather a sort of system that just counts up the total popular vote or whatever the alternative might be. But as long as the system is there, we've got to make sure that it actually works the way uh, it's intended to. 
Um, and and but people can't use it in order to claim spuriously that a free and fair election was somehow fake. Um, I think that's perfectly consistent. Um, you, you can have those two points of view at the same time. You know, I think we're in a very strange equilibrium in the United States. When I look at this as a student of comparative politics or as somebody who's lived in other countries, who's, who's, who's voted in Germany before I became a United States citizen and voted here, um, you know, we have this odd world in which there are conspiracy theories and often lies about uh, the integrity of our electoral system that mostly come from the right and the demand for um, better voter ID and so on laws that require people to have some form of identification. And then um, on the left, there is understandably the fear that a lot of uh, poorer people, a lot of socioeconomically disadvantaged people, a higher share of African-Americans don't have the kind of ID uh, it would take to be able to vote under that kind of law. Now, here's a very simple solution that every other country I know of has, which is you have a free form of state or national ID that gives all citizens access to a whole set of services, including banking services, including being able to um, get your driving license, including all of the other things, all of the other benefits you get when you have a good, reliable, free form of ID. And that form of ID is then also required to vote. So I think that there is a way that's a little bit more ambitious of um, allaying some of those fears, even if some of them may be irrational and many of them may be in bad faith, um, about the integrity of our electoral system, while making sure that all of those people who currently don't have access to high-quality IDs, which impedes their lives in all kinds of ways, aren't just able to go and vote, they're also able to go about all those other important things in their lives, where currently the stance of many of my friends, and I'm more on the left, um, of many of my friends is, no, we can't ask them to have voter ID because that would disenfranchise them. Um, but we're not too worried about the fact that that also might mean we can't get a bank account. So let's make sure that we give them a free, high-quality ID issued by the state or issued by the United States, um, and then it becomes perfectly appropriate to also ask for that as a form of ID when we go to vote. Seems very constructive. Uh, I could go along with that. Uh, all right, I'm going to ask you about one last thing, and it kind of speaks to, I think, some of the impetus for you establishing persuasion. Um, you know, I'm just, once again, noticing how badly broken down the dialogue is between each side. And there are images that are going to haunt me for a long time. One of them I read about, I think, once again, in the Washington Post this week, in a description of a Democratic a member of Congress, a woman who was trying to hand out masks, COVID masks, in one of the lockdown rooms. Mm. These lawmakers are, and the, and the Republican members of Congress were refusing to take the masks. Here you are, you're under siege uh, from a mob, you're locked inside a room uh, and there's a pandemic and they still won't take the masks out of some uh, either principle or I, I don't know. And and now I've just been informed that uh, Bonnie Watson Coleman, a 75-year-old congresswoman and cancer survivor, has tested positive for coronavirus after taking shelter in one of those rooms where other lawmakers would not wear masks. And to me, it's kind of symbolic of a problem that I see right now. Like, I, I, I want to be as I think you want to be engaged and, and fostering engagement uh, and, and creating environments where, you know, once again, to the point of persuasion, uh, rather than each side retreating or each person retreating to kind of knee-jerk reactions to everything that just don't lead to any kind of sharing. I, I want to go beyond that somehow, but I'm also 
so depressed by and distrustful of right now, uh, people who would do something like that, people who would contest uh, election results when they know better. I mean, it would be hard for me to put one of those people on the air right now, because I think there's another kind of counter argument, which is we've got to stop. You know, it's sort of the Jay Rosen argument. You got to stop putting on camera and in front of microphones people who are not telling the truth about things. And and that seems very much counter to the kind of thing that you're trying to foster and and engage. But I don't know how to solve that problem. It it really seems like a broken puzzle to me right now. So what are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, I had the same thought I read about this. I think it was Lisa Blunt Rochester, great African-American congresswoman from uh, Delaware, actually. Um, who is trying to uh, get the other people in that room to wear masks and they refused. I mean, it really is a very personal form of disrespect for the well-being of, of her colleagues. It's it's really very striking um, in my mind. And more broadly, I think there's this debate about how you think about that in journalism. Um, I think there was a form of sort of bad both-siderism um, that prevailed in many journalistic norms from sort of saner times where on any one issue, you would just look at people on both sides of it. And even if um, the issue was actually very clear scientifically, it was very clear what the actual facts of the matter were, um, you need to get sort of a couple of quotes of people sort of disputing that. Um, I think it's it's right to move away from that. But I also think that in the process of moving away from it, vast swaths of uh, newspapers, magazines, and public radio too are moving towards, we only ever need to give you the view that is popular at dinner parties of our staff and our friends. And anything else would be um, straying from our actual mission, which is to be God's voice and to inform you from on high about what is right and what is wrong. Um, And that, I think, is a huge danger to the country as well, because it will um, deepen the split between the elite and everybody else. It'll make people even more mistrustful of the media. It'll lead to real echo chambers in which people who don't agree with that prevailing view run off into their own direction and simply tune out. Um, So we need to find the middle of those two things where, yes, if there is a clearly scientifically settled question, is the coronavirus deadly or not? We're not going to bring somebody on um, to argue against the fact that coronavirus has killed a lot of people in the United States just to have two sides of an issue. That would be wrong. Um, But we then have to be very, very careful not to create an echo chamber where under the uh, pretext of moving on from that kind of both-siderism, you know, we only present you with one view of a world. We only present you with one set of arguments. um, An enemy who disagrees is deplatformed. All right. Well, that would be a whole other... (laughs) conversation because there's a whole lot of deplatforming going on right now, but uh, we're out of time. Yasha Munk, contributing editor at The Atlantic, associate professor at Johns Hopkins University, a whole bunch of other things. His uh, most recent book is The People versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. Uh, He also is the founder of the newsletter slash platform Persuasion. Yasha, thanks for coming back. Always such a pleasure to talk to you, Colin. All right. So we're going to take that break I mentioned. Uh, when I we come back, it'll just be you and me, phone calls, that kind of thing. The number is 888-720-9677. You might as well call right now. 888-720-WNPR. Or you can tweet at us, at WNPR, Colin. We'll be back. Some people say, I don't know. 
All right, uh, I am opening the phones here right now. That, that actually, just as a figure of speech, the phones are always theoretically open. The number is 888-720-9677. I mean, I, I, I'm i going to throw out a few things that uh, I do want to talk about, uh, but uh, also I'm just kind of open to, there's so many things kind of staring us in the face right now, or maybe some of the things you heard me talk to Yasha about. It's 888-720-9677. Or you may tweet us. You may tweet us at WNPR, Colin. So um, before I do that, I want to once again say we, we have a busy week planned and some exciting stuff planned. We may get preempted here and there, uh, but we're pretty confident or at least hopeful uh, that we will on Thursday be able to air the first episode and possibly the only <laughs> episode of Pardon Me, Another Damn Impeachment Show, Season 2. Uh, and we have Michael Gerhardt, who, if you recall, uh, during the original impeachment, during impeachment one, there were four legal experts who came in to sort of explain uh, or to give expert testimony in the the law of impeachment. He was one of them, and he was on the first season of Pardon, <laughs> Pardon Me. So well, that and other surprises. And then if it all works out and it then isn't rendered obsolete. We will uh, rerun it on Saturday, which was its original home. It was Saturdays at noon. So anyway, that's what's coming up here, uh, plus other stuff. Uh, all right. So um, I gave out the phone number. I'll do it one more time. We've already got a call, 888-720-9677, 888-720-9677. I'll talk to you about anything you want. I am specifically interested in the thing that I was talking to Yasha about at the end. How do we, on the one hand, foster some kind of engagement, not have a country that is totally divided or stuck in echo chambers, but on the other hand, um, don't put things on mainstream media that are not true and allow them to repeat, to be repeated and have currency, uh, or, or should we maybe even just take that risk? Uh, also, how do we look at some of the platforms like Parler, I, by the way, I had a Parler account. I had a Parler account because I wanted to know what was being said on Parler. Uh, but Parler appears to be shut down, at least for the moment, not by the government, but by private platforms that are not hosting it anymore. So, uh, yeah, well, but I'll take. So that's to me a really interesting question. Like, what's the right answer? Uh, no rapprochement at all between the two sides? Or is there some other way to think about all this? All right. Let me go to David here. David, uh, you're on the air from Wyndham. Ooh, Eastern Connecticut is checking in. We've also got a chaplain call. David, uh, you have the floor. Hi, Colin. Great to talk to you. I would say, to your question, my idea of it anyway, is that we do what Mitt Romney said, is just people the truth. The problem, of course, is, you know, how do you convince people to tell the truth? Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, for yes, yes to both things. I mean, I, I had got a really interesting email from a guy named Brendan earlier today who was basically saying this to me, saying that, look, you're getting to be like CNN. You just have people on who think what you think, you know, and then where does that ever get us? Uh, and he's right to a certain point, although, you know, 
It's not like what makes people happy at dinner parties or whatever it was that Yasha said. In fact, I'll take some crap from the left today for having Yasha on. I always do. And, you know, we'll put people like Peter Weiner, uh, who served as a Republican in three different Republican administrations, uh, Jack Goldsmith, who was a major legal counsel in Bush 43. But, yeah, truth is really truth ought to be the bar you have to clear, you know, but there's so many people who. I mean, before reconciliation comes truth. But there's so many people who believe and want to expound upon things that are not true. You know, I mean, it feels like there's 75 million people. Well, maybe not quite that many, but, you know, who who, who do that. So, you know, if we're going to make truth the price of admission, David, it feels like we're going to turn a lot of people away. <laughs> well, the truth hurts. Uh, sometimes, but you know, grown-ups and and uh, people who are adults accept the truth and then deal with it. Right. But well, we don't have a bunch of adults in the room. Is the problem? Right. My question for you is this: I've been having a debate with a friend of mine who's a lawmaker for a while and very smart woman, and uh, she insists over and over again that. Trump is a fascist, and I say this guy is not a fascist because he doesn't have an ideology. This guy is an anarchist because you never know what's coming. And I'm wondering what your uh, what your take is on that. Well, first of all, I mean it's it's a question that gets to, um, debated a lot. Um, I would refer to you to two pieces by a Georgetown professor named John McNeil, who uh, wrote about this in the Washington Post. The first time he wrote about it was in 2016. And um, in what he kind of, in a way, he was sort of uh, aping the device that Glenn Kessler, the fact checker for The Washington Post, who gives out Pinocchios, uh, he gave out Benitos. He went category by category by category. These are the characteristics of fascism. This is the degree to which Trump either does or does not meet them. And then I think in 2019, he kind of updated them. Now, you know, McNeil, and I actually got in touch with him after January 6th, and I said, you know, how about now? Is this worth a few more Benitos? And he said, yeah, it's definitely worth some more Benitos. But, you know, he he and others have laid out fascism less of an ide- as an ideology. Fascists believe X and more as a style of governance, a style of governance that does, in fact, uh, feel comfortable with the use of violence, does, in fact, uh, substitute a personality cult for principles and norms of governance. I mean, you can sort of go through all those things, you know, and then he's either, Trump is either a fascist or he's so close. (laughs) He's so close that what's the point of having the conversation? I I would say that even for people who were willing to hold back, you know, and and reserve judgment on that question, you know, January 6th was kind of a tipping point. I mean, he declared himself, unless David, like you, you insist that fascists must have a specific uh, ideology, in which case Trump is saved because he has no ideology other than the personality cult of him. All right, let me just, I'd love to actually talk that whole thing out with you, but then nobody else would get on and that would be a problem. So um, let me go to, I'm having a cursor, there we go, Uh, Gail from Chaplin. Hi, Gail, you're on the air. Hi, thank you for having me. Yes, I agree with everything said. I mean, so many um, adjectives to describe Donald Trump, which is uh, disturbing, demagogue and autocrat and what have you. But I'm calling in because of my uh, irritant about Melania Trump giving a <laughs> statement that uh, our commonality and lack of uh, 
think the violence was great. She doesn't seem to get that she lives with the enemy. She has the enemy in the White House. She didn't say anything through all his tweeting, through all these months, through all the years, since 16, maybe even before that. She doesn't seem to understand that she isn't liked. She hasn't been our first lady. She hasn't really had an agenda. So for her to come on and give these ridiculous statements, what is that supposed to do for everybody? That's nothing, nothing at all. She is part of that family. That family, I hope, goes down in disgrace for the rest of their life. Well, they will with some people and not for others. Let me just say this, Gail. I, I think, first of all, I think you and I have the same disease, which is, you know, occasionally entertaining a little flicker of belief that someone connected to all of this is going to say a little something different. And when I saw the headline for that statement, I thought, wow, maybe she is going to say something a little bit more uh, inclusive or caring or contrite or something than what her husband has been doing. And then immediately it, it appeared to me that that would not be the case. And it made me think of, I mean, people have made fun of me on social media when, when Trump actually got COVID, uh, I said, and then he sort of came back out of it and he was the same guy. And I said, kind of like you wondering if Melania would say something different. I, I thought when he got COVID, he might say, wow, I got this disease and, you know, I've been underestimating it and you really can get it because I got it and and it was bad and I was lucky to get the treatment I got and, you know, I'm going to take this a little bit more seriously. And we're both idiots because they're never going to do anything like that. That is just well, not anywhere in the script. Right. But I totally sympathize with you for, for – I'm the same way. I keep hoping. Well, I'm irritant is the fact that uh, he has been – I. I hate to call him the president because he never has been. And for her to come on to think that she has some kind of title about herself, which I feel personally that she does not, it does not help. Um, you are four years to date. Your words mean nothing. They hold no weight. And, you know, let's hope that uh, the next administration gets in there without any harm and we can actually reclaim our country again. All right. Thanks for your call. Um, it, it was reported, I think, today that um, on the 6th, last Wednesday, they did, there were staffers who tried to get Melania to go talk to Trump to get him to say something uh, a little bit more definite uh, about calming the situation down. And she declined. I think she was having a photo shoot at the time. So um, I don't think you can, you can expect much from her. Uh, but it's natural that we would look for anybody who is not Donald Trump and think, well, what are the odds that person isn't a little bit better? All right, let's take a break. We've got calls from Cameron and Meredith and Peter, uh, and we'll talk to those people on the other side of this. All 
All right, we are back. I've got people to thank. We'll start with Cat Pastor. She's there in the studio making it all happen, makes it possible for me to work remotely, and for Betsy Kaplan, senior producer and producer of this episode, whom I also thank to work remotely. I will say also, over the weekend, we started talking about reviving. Well, we started talking Friday, but over the weekend, we spent a lot of time scheming, uh, Betsy Kaplan, uh, Jonathan McPants, and me, about uh, how to revive our, our show, Pardon Me. And it's fun to work with people who get excited about projects like this. I mean, everybody feels kind of slammed these days. So to, I'm privileged to work with people who, when they feel slammed, say, well, let's try to do something even more complicated and stressful, which almost caused us all to be hospitalized pre-COVID uh, back in 2019. So it's it's good to have dreamers. Uh, and uh, so thanks for that. Okay, so uh, here we go. Let's go to uh, Cameron in Meriden. Hi, Cameron, you're on the air. Hi, Colin. Uh, thank you for having me on. Um, just a quick question. I, I'm actually a sophomore at Yale University, and I feel like I'm hearing a lot of opinions on things that have been happening lately. And I'm just a little concerned with the fact that it seems like a lot of people are focused on the actions of individuals and, like, individual situations, like you had brought up before, the senators refusing to wear masks. And I feel like, how do you think that affects kind of the conversations about larger issues that are, like, present before and I feel like will continue um, after the Trump presidency? Great question, uh, and I'm glad you called in, and I'm going to be teaching there this spring, uh, and I'll be excited to have students like you. Um, so let me just say this. First of all, there was a terrific piece in the National Review, which is a very conservative publication. Uh, I think it was written by Yuval Levin. I hope I'm saying that. I hope I have, I'm remembering that name correctly. But he talked, as others have, I mean, about, yeah, when do we get back to the conversation about ideas? And he, as a conservative thinker, feels as though his own party, uh, the Republican Party, has kind of betrayed that, that we're having conversations uh, that involved scientific denialism about COVID uh, and civics denialism about the results of the election. And he, he very eloquently sketched out the kinds of things that Republicans typically believe uh, and that they want to talk about. And, and I don't have it in front of me right now, but it, he did a beautiful job of laying those things out. So the question is, when do we get back to ideas and when do we get away from the kind of personal behavior, Cameron, that I think you're talking about or focusing on the kind of personal behavior? But I, I think right now the Republican Party, you know, and I don't mean to seem super one-sided about this, but I don't think there's any way around it. Look, the Democrats can't wait to get back in right now. Uh, they're going to have for, you know, two years maybe pretty solid control of all three branches. And they want to do something, I'm sure, do more about health care, do more about transportation in, in a way that's uh, very attentive to the dangers of climate change, do more about climate change. I mean, you can sort of run through the ideas, um, uh, build up the social safety net, address some of the uh, inequalities that really showed up not only in Black Lives Matter, but in the COVID epidemic and, and the health outcomes for people of color. All that stuff is just kind of, we know that that's what they want to do. But, you know, I said this the other day, when Paul Ryan was Speaker of the House, which I think he was until 2019, 2018, I can't remember now. But when, when Trump got in, Paul Ryan was Speaker of the House. I knew exactly what Paul Ryan thought about things. You know, I didn't agree with any of it, but I certainly knew what his ideas were. I just I have a hard time assigning ideas right now to the Republican Party. They've been so involved in this cult of personality and with and in parroting back lies that he told about COVID in the election. I, 
I think you and I agree. Like, I don't want to have to talk about personal behavior all the time, but that's going to involve the Republican Party getting back to ideas, which I, I don't see happening right now. But you should have the last word about this, Cameron. Yeah, I was just going to say it's, it's, it's a little concerning seeing seeing the, the left kind of drawn into that conversation, like the conversation that that no one even wanted to have in the first place, fixated on these individual issues. Um, and I just think it's really, really interesting that you call it a cult of personality because that's kind of how I see it as well. Um, and I don't really have many last words. Just thank you for your time. All right. I've been listening for a long time through high school, and uh, I just I really like what you always have to say. All right. Well, thanks very much, Cameron. And I'm certainly honored and flattered uh, that you care at all. All right. So uh, let's get uh, more calls on here uh, as quickly as possible. And uh, here, let's go to Meredith in Brantford. Hi, Meredith. Hey, can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. Oh, hi. How you doing? Just fine. Um, I just wanted to call you with a comment um, really quickly. You know, I think we're all enraged, and uh, there's this whole discussion and all this banter on impeach or don't impeach. However, we're at the end here, and I feel like nobody's really talking about the security issue that did or didn't take place. Um, these, there's a lot of very angry people out there who feel like they are complete patriots. And I'm, I'm just wondering, like, why aren't we talking more about that security piece and moving forward, especially when they're talking about their next phase? I, I don't know. Like, I, I kind of want to see that. <laughs> I want to see we're secure and safe. Right. So, and um, I, I it's, it's, yeah, I, first of all, thank you for your call. Uh, and I think what I would say about that is that we tend to fight the last war. So there's a lot of people involved right now very conscientiously and, and wholeheartedly and uh, on a completely justifiable level trying to figure out what happened last Wednesday and how did it happen? And what are the flaws? What needs to be tightened up? Who needs to be gotten rid of? All that kind of stuff. But I think if I get what you're kind of driving at, I, I think there's another question, which is, yeah, I mean, how safe is Nancy Pelosi on any given day right now or Chuck Schumer or members of our delegation or whatever? You know, I mean, there's just sort of no way that everybody connected to uh, last Wednesday is going to be rounded up. And there's also, there's also no way that everybody who wants to participate in the forceful uh, detainment or, or the forceful compulsion uh, of people that they don't like. Th those people are going to be, they're out there, they're seated. They didn't all go to Washington. They had other things to do. Uh, I was able pretty easily leading up to May 6th, January 6th to find people talking about that on Connecticut uh, websites. So, yeah, I mean, it's sort of what I was asking Yasha about, too. How do we not have another Patriot Act thing where, in fact, security exists at the price of many of our principles? Uh, how do we not have a situation where we're like over surveilling one another? Um, but but we're also safe. There's a way in which it became clear last Wednesday that there are people who are unscrupulous and dangerous and violent uh, in their opposition to, well, in their opposition to what? It's not in their opposition. It's in their support of the president. Uh, and it just, you know, it, I don't know. It's a balance that will have to be struck. We are, 
We were proven on Wednesday to be insufficiently secure, and, and I'm not exactly sure what we're going to do about it. Uh, I essentially have no time left, and I'll probably get yelled at for doing this, but I'm going to put Peter on the air. Peter, can you do it in... Well, real quickly, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, I just remember about when you, uh, when so many people, so many pundits said, how long is he going to last? Uh, when he first started, one year, uh, two years, and, and he's already you know, he's, he's on the verge of going for another term. When, all, when way back, when it seems like a, a 10 years ago, people were saying he's not going to even last even, you know, a year, and even you were trying to shuffle your vacation around to, because you were afraid that you were going to be on vacation when he left. And, you know, <laughs> it, it, he's uh, overestimated everybody, right? Yeah, or we, we underestimated him. Um, yeah, no, I mean, or we overestimated the, the, the taste and principles and decorum and decency and commitment uh, of his base. Uh, because they're the ones who I think have kept him in power all this time. And he didn't lose by all that much. I mean, by one argument, he lost by a landslide. And by his own terms, he lost by a landslide. But he also didn't lose by that much. There was not the kind of rejection of him that one might have thought. Yeah, I thought in the outset that he wouldn't even really have the discipline to do the job. And, and I don't know exactly what I thought, but I, I just thought he's so unfamiliar I mean, he doesn't know what the, the job is. He's never known what the job is, and therefore he's not any good at it. Uh, and he breaks a lot of rules, uh, and he does things that you can get impeached for. He, go, he does things that you can be taken to court for. He still may face prosecution for some of the stuff that he did. I think, yeah, maybe I overestimated the the, the ability of the norms of American democracy to deal with a person like that, who is also extremely good at cultivating feverish support among part of the population. So uh, we'll have to stop there. Um, but yeah, we have exciting stuff coming up this week. So stay with us and stick around. And we love you. You're special. Now go home. Yourself.